This was awesome, and so looking forward to that. And so I'd love to just pray for Brian and pray for all of us this morning as we um, hear and receive God's word. Uh, Lord, I just want to thank you this morning for your word. Thank you that uh, your word uh, pierces our hearts, and we do pray that that would happen this morning, that your spirit would, um, would move in our hearts and help us to, to understand your word clearly and help us to apply it um, well, that your spirit would empower us to take what we've heard today and not just be hearers of it, but doers as well. I pray especially for Brian. I ask that you would um, pour out your grace and your mercy upon him, that your spirit would empower him to articulate your word clearly, um, that, he, that your spirit also would uh, would, would work through Brian um, to, to deliver your word the way that you want it to today. Lord, we pray that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened um, and that our hearts would be, would be um, ready to receive whatever you would have for us this morning. God, we look forward to, to meeting you here right now as we receive this word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, God. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 9. That's where we'll be this morning. And uh, our church is going through the book of Acts, sort of chronicling the birth of the church and the things that the Holy Spirit does amidst all kinds of persecution and all kinds of difficulties. And uh, actually, this it's funny, I had nightmares that the Gators would win last night and that no one would show up to church, but thankfully the Lord is faithful and good has triumphed over evil once again. So I'm glad you guys are here. Acts chapter 9, and uh, this really is a remarkable passage because it is such a reversal of all the fortunes of the church. Up until this point, the church has been persecuted, and Saul, the guy we're going to meet, is the spearhead agent of this persecution of the church. And this account of Saul's conversion to Christianity is one of the most stunning moments in this entire uh, book. But as stunning as it was, I remember as I was studying it, thinking about all of my own experiences in evangelism or discipleship. You know, sharing the word with somebody, proclaiming the gospel. And it was a little depressing. I look, I look at this story and there's this amazing conversion. And then I think about the times that I've shared the gospel. And more often than not, people reject it or they don't care or there's no fruit from it. And I know that for most of us, that, that's a very difficult part of the Christian life. There's a lot of frustration that happens. You pray for somebody for years and there's no fruit at all. Or even worse, you pray for someone and there's a little bit of fruit. And then for some reason they abandon the faith, they turn away. And that's probably the most devastating of all. In fact, I remember I was sharing the parable of the sower with one of my friends who I didn't really know where he was. I, I didn't know if he was a Christian or not. And so I was sharing the parable of the sower, which Jesus talks about in Mark, and it's about these four different types of soil. Three of the types of soil are non-Christians, and the last type of soil is a true Christian. So I was kind of sharing this to see you know, what he was thinking. And after I'd shared it with him, he looked at me and he said, you know, I really appreciate that. 
I think I'm the third kind of soil, you know, the one that loves the world. I think I'm that kind of Christian. And I was like, you know that means you're not a Christian, right? And he just looked at me like he was completely unaffected. Well, I, I believe the story. This is, I don't feel any conviction from this. And I was stunned because here I was. I had done everything right. I had faithfully proclaimed the gospel. I was bold. I had prayed for this guy. And there was no fruit. And I started to think, did I fail at this? Was this this evangelism a failure? And I remember asking this, uh, this older guy who I greatly respected, and he's a wonderful evangelist, very faithful guy, works with college students. And I, and I asked him, you know, how do you deal with this? How do you deal with the disappointment year after year of these people that you minister to and they keep turning away or they, they, they never show up again or, or nothing seems to take root? How do you deal with that? And I, I'll never forget what he told me. He said, you know, every time you preach the gospel, it does something. It will either be the means by which a sinner comes to saving knowledge of Christ and receives grace, or it will be used against them on the last day when God says to them, I sent to you my servants, people to evangelize to you, and you did not listen. And that was a profound moment for me in understanding the purpose and the motivation behind evangelism and discipleship. And I realized that the main motivation is faithfulness to God and not results. And I think that comes through in this passage of uh, talking about the conversion of Saul, that the motivation for our evangelism is faithfulness to God, not results. And I'll quickly, there's three examples. There's faithful evangelism, faithful friendship, and faithful suffering. Those are three portraits we're going to look at in this text. So the first thing we see is faithful evangelism. And I'll sort of just work through the passage verse by verse so we can kind of see the story as it unfolds before our eyes. This is Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. We'll stop right there. Right off the bat, we meet the main character of the story, this guy named Saul. Saul of Tarsus. And we find out very quickly that Saul is an angry guy. (laughs) He is a grumpy guy. It says that he was breathing threats and murder against Christians. And not only was he breathing threats and murder, but he was still breathing threats and murder, which means he has been doing this, he has been stewing on this for a long time. So what is he still breathing threats and murder from? What's the context? Well, a couple chapters before, in chapter 7, we witness Stephen, who's a faithful Christian, and he is preaching in a hostile environment to all these Jews, and he's preaching the gospel to them. And Stephen's a faithful guy, and Saul is among the people in the crowd watching Stephen preach. And Stephen has these memorable lines, such as calling 
the crowd uncircumcised, stiff-necked people and saying that their fathers had murdered all the prophets that came before him and that, that they were responsible for the murder of the righteous one, Jesus Christ. So this is not exactly a, a seeker-sensitive kind of preacher. He's not really very nuanced. He is proclaiming the truth as faithfully as he can. And of course, we know what happens to him. Stephen becomes the first martyr. Stephen dies. He's stoned to death, an absolutely horrible, barbaric type of death. And Saul is there watching it. In fact, Saul recounts this moment later on in Acts, in chapter 22. Saul says, I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. So he is a cold-hearted man. You can talk about evangelism. That is a major evangelism fail. I don't know if you've ever evangelized to somebody and they've looked at you and said, you know, not only do I disagree with you, but I want to kill you for what you believe. And not only do I want to kill you for what you believe, I want to kill the people you love who believe the same thing. This is an amazing witness by Stephen. And of course, this makes Saul extremely angry and he goes off with these papers to arrest Christians in Damascus. And you wonder, what is wrong with this? Why was Saul so angry at the people who followed Jesus. Well, we have to do a little homework. We have to understand Saul's background. Saul is a Pharisee. And the Pharisees were a sect in Judaism that were very nationalistic. They were very proud of their ethnic heritage. They were very proud that they were sons of Abraham. And they were very strict in their obedience to all the Jewish customs and the Jewish dietary laws and the Jewish rituals. It said that they had divided the Old Testament into 613 commandments, and they prided themselves in their ability to follow all of those commandments. And Saul was a bit of a rock star in the Pharisee world. He writes in Galatians that he was advancing in Judaism beyond many of his own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. So this is a guy who's accelerating. This is a, a, a wonder boy kind of character who just, is, he's, he's going up through the ranks of Phariseeism. And he's zealous for his faith. He was also... Saul is his Hebrew name, so he's Jewish, but he also had a Latin name, Paul. That's how we know him, the Apostle Paul. And that means that he had Roman citizenship. So he's a very cultured man. He understood Greek culture. He understood Greek thought. And he had a vast understanding of the Old Testament scriptures because he studied under one of the greatest Pharisees, the top dog Pharisee. His name was Gamaliel which sounds like a Lord of the Rings character, but that's not what it is. This guy Gamaliel was so eloquent and so versed in the law that people called him the beauty of the law. And Saul was his prized student. So this this is not a stupid guy. This is a cultured, sophisticated, intelligent man. And because he was a Pharisee, he hated Christ. And we know this because in John 
chapter 5, we see these Pharisees going up to Jesus and they are accusing him of blaspheming God by saying that he is equal to God. How can you call God your father? You are making yourself equal with God. That is blasphemy. And that's why they ended up killing him. And this is fascinating because this means that the, the greatest enemy of the church at the time was not an atheist. He was not a Roman. He was not a pagan or a secular person. The greatest enemy to the church was a religious man. Someone has to protect the honor of God. Someone has to set these people who follow Jesus right for the glory of God. He is going to Damascus to defend God's honor by persecuting Christians. There is no God-shaped hole in his heart. He's not seeking after something missing in his life. He thinks he has found it. And that is what makes this next event so incredible. Look at verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Later on, Saul recounts this event, and he actually, and actually some of your translations may have this in the verse, but Saul kind of elaborates later on what Jesus fully said. And the full thing that, full thing that Jesus said was, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. I love that word, goads. And what a goad is, is it's a, it's this stick with a spike at the end, and it's used by people to, to control cattle, to prod them along. And the idea is, with this goad, if you would prod the cattle, if they resisted, if they kicked against this goad, they would stab themselves. It would hurt them. And it was a way of ensuring that they would obey. And so it's very interesting that this voice from heaven comes to Saul and says, you're persecuting me. And you are kicking against the goads. You are kicking and killing yourself by what you are doing. And so this religious, self-righteous man hears this voice calling out his name. He knows him personally. And listen to what Paul says in verse 5. He says, Who are you, Lord? He looks at the the light and goes, Who are you, Lord? Which is a very interesting thing to say. Because on one hand, he recognizes the divine authority that is being revealed to him. He realizes there's there's this, this... holiness to this voice. Lord, this this voice is speaking. I know this is God, and yet he says, but who are you? What what do you mean I'm I'm persecuting you? I I love you. I I love your law. I want to obey you. I'm doing this for you. What do you mean? Kicking against the goats. I am here to wipe out 
those Jesus followers for your glory. And then this voice says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. What a humbling moment. What a a gripping moment in the life of Saul to be there and to think that he was seeking the honor of God and instead he was kicking against goads and the very person that he was trying to wipe out is God. What what do you mean? I'm not persecuting you. And he says, and this is interesting, this, this really brings a whole new level to understanding the church as Christ's body because Christ says when you persecute the church, you're persecuting me. When you arrest these Christians, I take that very personally. I identify with my people. And you are kicking against the goads. And look at the next verse. Jesus says, But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. It must have been a very weird day for the people walking with him. Just seeing Paul, you know, sort of talking to him. You know, they hear this voice, they can't see anything. They're seeing this guy just having this crazy moment, and they end up having to to lead him to Damascus. And what's interesting is in this moment, he he recognizes his error. He recognizes that he's been persecuting God when he thought he was serving God. But there's no clear moment of salvation in this passage. There's no moment where he says, Lord, I accept you as my Lord and Savior. You know, he doesn't throw anything into a campfire or, you know, there's no sinner's prayer going on, Right? Which is fascinating, but we, we know that something happened in his heart because of the reaction, because of what happened after, because of what the effect of seeing Jesus did to him. And in some ways, that's a better barometer of somebody's genuine faith than it is their profession. And we see that he is so traumatized and affected by this event that he can't even eat or drink for three days. And then he's struck Blind. And he has to be helped to a house in Damascus. Just imagine what that must have been like to have been in utter darkness. And he gets up and he opens his eyes and he can't, I can't, I can't see anything. I, everything is dark. And the last thing he saw was Christ's eyes piercing into his heart. And the thought that everything I had known, everything I thought about God, about my life, about my purpose was wrong. Everything must change. I was wrong. This is not him deciding to make a few changes in his life. This is not viewing a picture that's blurry and suddenly it comes into focus or black and white becoming color. This is death and rebirth. This is resurrection. This is, this is utter darkness. 
to eventual sight. That is how radical conversion is. And you know, as a Pharisee, he would have been very proud of his ethnicity, very proud of his nation and his obedience. But in his blindness, he finally sees himself for who he really is. All of that was an illusion. He realizes that he is a blind, helpless, God-hating, pitiful sinner. And you know what? Saul would have grown up as a Jewish boy reading all of the wonderful prophecies about the Messiah. In Isaiah, he would have known about the coming king. He would restore the kingdom of Israel. He would bring about peace. And he longed for that day when his nation would be restored and Rome would be kicked out and the Gentiles would be kicked out and Israel would be pure. And in the darkness, he realizes that his greatest problem was not Rome. His greatest issue were not the Gentiles or the sinners over there. Saul realizes that his biggest problem is Saul. And that maybe this Savior was doing more for him than he realized. And all this to say, Stephen didn't know any of this was going to happen. In fact, when Stephen was preaching, he, he wasn't even preaching to Saul. Saul was in the background somewhere. But he, he preached anyway. He understood that this was a call to be faithful regardless of the results. And that freed him up to preach boldly. And by the way, if you're not a Christian here, there's wonderful hope for you because Saul's a pretty bad guy and if you haven't killed any Christians then there is grace for you because if a murderer can be forgiven so can you there is forgiveness but make no mistake that one day you will see the Lord and you will say who are you Lord And if you continue to reject Christ, he will look at you and he will say, I am Jesus, whom you ignored, whom you rejected, whom you mocked, whom you hypocritically claimed to follow. And on that day, it'll be too late. The second thing we see is a faithful friendship. And this is a really beautiful portrait of of love and faithfulness. Look at verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in And lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Now, 
the name Ananias kind of has a bad rap up to this point of the book of Acts. Because the last Ananias we saw, who's a different Ananias, was killed by God for lying to the Holy Spirit. So the name Ananias has fallen on hard times. But this Ananias is a different Ananias. This Ananias is a faithful Ananias. Paul recounts his testimony later on in Acts, and he talks about Ananias, calling him a a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who live there. So he's a faithful man, he's a holy man. Some commentators think he was a leading elder in the church at Damascus. And I love his attitude. I mean, God comes to him, and he says, Ananias. He just says his name. He doesn't explain what he's going to do, he just says his name, and Ananias says, here I am. Lord, ready to serve, open to whatever God has for him. So this is a good man. And it's incredible the command that God gives Ananias. I want you to go and find the man who is called Saul the Ravager, find the man who is persecuting people you love, and I want you to go heal his blindness. And Ananias has a pretty reasonable response. Are you you sure you want me to... I mean, this guy, you know this guy has killed people I love. You know this guy is the reason we're all hiding. You know this guy is the reason we're all in fear. And I'm kind of glad he's blind. (laughs) That was a personal prayer request of mine. It's very helpful. And you want me to restore his sight? And Jesus answers him in an incredible fashion. He says, Go, for he is a chosen servant of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. What an amazing statement. He is a chosen instrument of mine. Are 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 you sure, God? Because he doesn't really have the symptoms of a chosen instrument of God. He seems more like a bloodthirsty killer to me. But let's let's not be mistaken on this point. What is happening here? God is giving a direct command. His words are giving a command. And the question is, not whether it is worth Ananias' time, not whether Ananias can understand how it will all unfold, but whether he will obey what God has said. And that is the question. It's not up for negotiation. And when he says... Saul is a chosen instrument of mine. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying that I have, by my grace, declared something about this man that has changed his identity. And what I have declared is final. The old is gone, the new has come. God is the one who justifies. Who can bring a charge against his Elect, this Saul of Tarsus is my child. And then Ananias goes. I love that. You know, he just, all right, God, it's good enough for me. 
If you have forgiven this sinner, then who am I to reckon him otherwise? And then the scene switches. We go away from Ananias and we find Saul. He's in the house of a man named Judas, not the, not the bad Judas. This is a, another Judas. And he's in this house and he's still blind and he's malnourished. He hasn't eaten or drank in days and he's all alone. And he hears Ananias come in to the house. And what was he thinking in that moment? You know, this Christian is coming in, and he knows all that I have done, all the evil I have done to the saints in Jerusalem. Is he going to kill me? Is he going to condemn me? Is he going to leave me here to die? But that's not what Ananias does. Look at verse 16. And laying his hands on him, he said, and I love this, the first thing he says, Brother Saul. Brother Saul. He he walks into this dark room with this pitiful, blind, helpless man who was responsible for so much pain and agony in his life, and he puts his arm, and he puts out his hand and places it on his shoulder and says, Brother, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight And then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Saul, I'm here to heal you. Baptizes him. He doesn't wait for him to conform to his standards. He welcomes him in. And he really fulfills the Great Commission. You know, he finds him and he teaches him. He's telling, I'm sure they had lots of conversation in that room. And then he baptizes him. Now, there's this scene in the Bible series. I, I watched They, they actually you know, filmed this scene, and it was such a moving thing because you see you know, this dark room, you see Saul, and he's blind, and then Ananias reaches over for this pitcher, and he pours water, water over Saul and says, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you can see the water just trickle down his face face and he can't see but he feels it and the 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 release that must have been the the relief the idea of of all that i've done to dishonor christ all of my hatred for god's people all of it forgiven born on the cross by christ and it is washed away and i am new i think so much of paul's theology was born in that moment i think that's when he understood there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus And I love how the first thing that Saul sees after three days of utter darkness is a friend. And it's almost as if God were saying to him, you will not understand this new life that I have given to you until you understand it in fellowship, in community. And Ananias lives up to his namesake. His name means the Lord is merciful. 
And then, after this account, we don't see Ananias again. He fades away. And it reminds me of John the Baptist. You know, he has this great ministry in the opening chapters of John, and then he's gone. And I think, you know, we spend so much time agonizing over the purpose of our life. What is the vision for our life and all these things? But it's very clear, and I think John and Ananias would agree, the purpose of your life is he must increase, I must decrease. That's it. That's it. That's all we are. Witnesses to his grace. And I thought, what would happen if, you know, a a revival broke out in Tallahassee among the homeless? You know, I just had this weird, you know, and and homeless people were just streaming in and taking communion and filling the pews and coming to fellowship group. And I thought, would I be as excited about that as if a hundred college students came in? Would I welcome, would would I go up to them and say, brother and sister? And that would be very hard for me in my flesh, in my sin. That would be very hard for me. And it reveals a lot, but we're called to be faithful with the ministry that God gives us, not the one that we wish we had. And that really moves towards the the last picture we see here. Faithful suffering. Faithful suffering. Look at verse 16. Jesus tells Ananias that this Saul character will be a chosen instrument for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I will show him how much he must suffer. And the Apostle Paul did suffer. He talks about receiving 40 lashes from the Jews, being shipwrecked three times, being hungry, the, the, the Thorn in his side, being exposed to the elements, constant disappointment, constant anxiety over the church, constant having to deal with all this false doctrine in the church, people abandoning him, people that he loved turning away. He suffered greatly. And yet, this man who suffered so greatly said, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He says, all of it, all of my comfort, my prestige, my honor, all of it is nothing compared to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. What possessed Paul to endure so much suffering and pain and anguish He loved Christ. He saw him as worthy of obedience regardless of the outcome. Regardless of what fruit he saw from it. And that's, I mean, that is the mission for us, right? We will suffer for Christ. And the idea that 
you know, it's sort of a Western invention, the idea of God being this, you know, glorified life coach, or he's here to help you fulfill your inner potential, or whatever it is. And, you know, I think about, there's this famous uh, quote that says, the place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. And I understand the sentiment of that, but I don't know if that's entirely a biblical idea. Because, I mean, the reality is, I don't know how often in this life we find that deep gladness in anything we do. Maybe it's temporary, but this world is a broken place. And so if it's all about, you know, when I, when I find my calling, when I find, when everything clicks together, that's when God starts to work. That's when I'm going to be faithful. That's not a biblical view. God is more concerned about your faithfulness now, here. Because if it's about your gladness, if that's what dictates your obedience, then your emotions dictate your obedience. Then you're not really submitting completely to Christ, right? I like what C.S. Lewis says, and this is a bit of a paraphrase, but he says, your real life is the one God is sending to you day by day. That's your life. That is the life God has for you. It's not somewhere over there behind the cloud, hidden. It's here. It's today. He is giving it to you. Who sovereignly decreed that you would have annoying coworkers? Who sovereignly gave you, you know, rebellious teenagers or, or those people you're trying to disciple and they keep turning away and keep not showing up and it never seems to take root? Who gave you that life? God did. Your Abba Father in heaven gave you that life knowing your weakness, knowing your frailty, and knowing that his grace is sufficient in all of that. And you know, faithfulness is not, and I, you know, I feel this way sometimes. I have a spiritual conversation and then I feel really excited when they go, oh, you know what, you're not like those other Christians. You're kind of cool. You know, you're, you're not like those other guys, you know? And I'm like, yeah, I'm not. I'm sophisticated, you know? And this whole idea, and I realized, wait a minute. Faithfulness means that they understand the gospel, that they know where I, that they know what I believe, right? And frankly, if it comes to, to keeping a friendship and proclaiming the gospel, you must proclaim the gospel, even if it costs you a friendship. Because if you don't, whose glory are you seeking whose name are you trying to protect and you think well that's going to be hard and and it will be hard in this life you will have many troubles do not think that i came to bring peace i came to bring a sword to divide father and son and mother and daughter to split families apart because of the offensive nature of my gospel And Paul saw it glorious to suffer for Christ. And he witnessed because he saw Christ as glorious. What an amazing transformation. Now you can sit there and think, okay, well, what does this, what does this exactly mean? Are you saying that we should just, you know, okay, it's just about faithfulness. We're just going to obey, and then if no one comes to Christ, we just be like, well, I guess it wasn't God's will, and just move on. Are we supposed to be stoic? 
You know, are, are, are we not supposed to care about results at all? No. No, no. We, that's not what I'm saying. We, we, results do matter. In fact, listen, we should still be hopeful people. Look at the end of Acts chapter 7, where Stephen is having his body ripped to shreds by stones. What is the last thing he says? As he is dying, he cries out in a loud voice. And this is a man who understands God's sovereignty. This is a man who knows it's about faithfulness and not results. And this man cries out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He prays, Lord, save these people. Do something. Act in time and space to save these people. He cries out out what an amazing act of faith and you know you would see that moment and you'd be like but but nobody got saved i mean nobody got saved there and not only that but now the church is even more persecuted now we have to scatter and now saul is even angrier than he ever was before What is going on? Does God listen to prayer? Does he even care what is happening? Are we just caught in the machinery of this world? What is happening? And then suddenly, one day, in the middle of nowhere, on a dusty road, in the most unexpected of ways to the most unlikely of people, God answers Stephen's prayer. And the heart of a bigoted, self-righteous, God-hating murderer is opened. And new life floods in. I would have loved to have seen Stephen's face when that happened. I don't know why the Lord waited till that moment. I don't know. But he did it. And, to, and I wonder if Stephen's sitting there going, Lord, are you telling me that you sovereignly decree that I would preach the gospel and that I would be stoned and die the death of an animal and just fall to the ground and the church would be persecuted more so than it ever had before and you would get Saul so angry that he would walk on a road and then you would open his heart and that Saul the ravager would become Paul, a slave of Christ. Paul, the greatest missionary, theologian, pastor that the church has ever known. And that Paul's written words would be used to save millions upon millions of people throughout the next 2,000 years. That's what you were up to this whole time? It's more than I could ask or think. So do not lose heart. Do not lose heart. Your work is not in vain. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according 
to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, for the clarity that it brings. I pray that you would shatter hard hearts and that those that we are ministering to who have rejected your grace would be open to new life, that you would grant them the new birth, that they would believe in your name. But we can only do this by your power, by your grace. Help us to be faithful. Help us to endure. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Brian.